Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. I do not have a title to this message. So, you have a job during this teaching to pay attention. But as you listen, I want you to create a title for this message. I'm curious what you would name this message. Maybe it's something personal to you. But I want you to be thinking and considering what you would name this portion of Scripture and how it applies to your life and what it's saying. So, with that in mind, be thinking of a title and pay attention as we go through this. Verse 14 says, Moreover, from that time I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, or King Arty for short, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the governor's portion. Verse 15. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine beside 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even the servants bore rule over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Just a reminder, we've been looking at this book and Jerusalem was left in ruins because they were in sin and God used another nation to discipline them. The nation of Babylon broke down all their walls, broke down their temple. And the book of Ezra is dedicated to them rebuilding the temple. The book of Nehemiah is dedicated to rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And without walls, you don't have protection. You don't have security. You don't have safety. Imagine if your house didn't have any walls. Would you feel safe sleeping there at night? No, none of us would. And so Nehemiah was sent by God to help rebuild Jerusalem's walls. And in chapters 4, 5, and 6, Nehemiah, this leader, is faced with opposition from the enemy. There was enemies from the north, the south, east, and west going to attack them and trying to intimidate them. There was discouragement on the inside from chapter 4, verse 10. And the people of Judah said, our strength is failing and we are not able to. Ten times they kept whispering, we're going to attack them, we're going to attack them, and we're going to attack them. So there was attacks and opposition from without and also from within. In verses 1 through 13 of chapter 5, we saw the selfishness and the greed of the Jewish people. They were actually hurting one another, charging interest on their fellow Jews. And when Nehemiah heard this, he became very angry. We see that in verse 6. He says, I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And it says, after serious thought, then he rebuked the rulers and the nobles for their sinful behavior because it was contrary to God's word. And he called a public meeting to deal with this matter. Chapter 5 actually contrasts the selfishness and the greed that we see in these rich Jews. It's contrasted against the selflessness and the generosity we see in Nehemiah. 
in verses 14 through 19, we are going to look at how Nehemiah was selfless. And he was generous in his leadership. And so the first thing I want to look at in verses 14 through 15 is the selflessness of Nehemiah. He came to serve and not to be served. Kind of like Jesus' heart in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, it says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was Nehemiah's heart. He came to serve the people. That was his mindset. In verse 14, it says, Moreover, from that time, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. King Ardi probably made Nehemiah governor over Judah. But this was truly God working behind the scenes because Romans chapter 13 says, God appoints people to power, to positions, to kings, to presidents. And so God took, if you remember, in Nehemiah chapter one and two, he took this cupbearer who would sip the wine before it was given to the king to make sure it wasn't poisonous. He would advise the king. God took this cupbearer and formed him into a builder. And he started the construction of the walls. Now he forms him again into the governor. I bet you Nehemiah never planned to be governor. But God knew what he was doing the whole entire time. And that's true for your life. God has a purpose for each and every one of you. You might be thinking, You don't know what his purpose for your life is, but he knows exactly what he's doing. When I was sitting in your seats, I never thought I would be teaching junior high, but God says, oh, I have a plan for Josh. Even though he's dyslexic, even though he's a terrible reader and a terrible speller, I'm going to use him. And so don't limit what God can do in your life. It says from the 20th year until the 32nd year of King Artie, Nehemiah became governor for 12 years, 12 years. That's actually when he came to rebuild the walls and he stayed in that position for 12 long years. That just proves faithfulness. And during those 12 years, Nehemiah nor his brothers ate the governor's portion. Now, what is the governor's portion? The governor had the right to raise taxes on the people to get more money. For his own use. The past governors actually charged the people 40 shekels of silver, bread and wine that they took from the people. This is what Nehemiah could have done. He was presented with this temptation. This temptation to be like the same governors, to live a comfortable, luxurious life, to eat like a king and to act like a king. He was tempted to be selfish and take advantage of people through his power. Can you imagine having whatever food you wanted the whole time? The best of the best? That's what Nehemiah could have had. Some of us, we get whatever our parents make us for dinner, right? Or what they make for lunch, or maybe we have to make our own lunches. Can you imagine the temptation? It's like, hey, you can have any food you want because you're in this position of power. How many of us would have resisted that? 
To me, I would have been like, dude, I want the steak. I want some filet mignon. I would have kind of taken it. Nehemiah, he refused. He refused the governor's portion. Him, his brothers followed his lead. He refused to be like the governors before him. He refused that comfortable life. He refused to be selfish and abuse his power. He was presented with a temptation. What are you being tempted with? What's being placed before you at this moment? And the enemy is like, say, hey, just take a bite of this. Hey, just go down this road. What are you being tempted with? Are you being tempted to cheat on a test? To take the easy way out? To lie? To your teacher, to your parents, to your friends? To take drugs? To gossip? To, to be angry? To look at something that you shouldn't be? Or what about that funny joke that someone made that's kind of dirty and sexual and there's that temptation to laugh at that? What about the temptation to be disrespectful and disobedient to our parents? To be selfish, not to serve, and to be like everybody else. Nehemiah was faced with these types of temptations. See, there's another voice that goes along with all these temptations. The other voice is saying, oh, it's just, just once. You can do it just once and get away with it. That's no problem. There's no harm to it, right? It'll never happen again. You can do it one time and stop after that. Or the other voice that says, oh, it's natural. Everyone's doing it. You should do it also. Your parents won't know. No one else will find out. No one else will see. See, Nehemiah was faced with this tempting offer to indulge, to have the comfortable life, to be selfish. There's a verse I want you guys to write down, and it's Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. God knowing the temptation that was in front of Cain, because Cain and Abel were brothers. They came and presented an offering before God. And God accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain. And this is what God said to Cain. If you, sorry, you will be accepted if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you but you must subdue it and be its master. In other words, all of us have a door to our heart. And sin is literally waiting at the door of your heart to come in and to control you. And when we open that door to sin and we invite it into our hearts and we give in to that sin, whether it's anger and you're just so heated and frustrated with your siblings or your family, whether it's gossip, whatever it may be, it's going to come in and control. And guess what? Everyone's a slave to something. You're either a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to sin. Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8 teach us that. 
whatever you present yourself to is what you're going to be a slave of. So if you see sin and you present yourself to sin, you're going to be a slave to sin. But if you present yourself to God, you're going to be a slave to God. And I love this verse because God gives us insight. He says, sin wants to control you. And sin is a cruel taskmaster, a cruel dictator. But through Christ and the Holy Spirit, the shackles of chains, the temptation that comes along with it, and the chains that sin brings into our lives can be broken. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, if you're dealing with temptation, now I want to say this, if you're being tempted with something, to be tempted is not sin. To give in to that temptation is. So all of a sudden there can be something that pops up before you and you have the option to go to it or to resist it. And I love this verse. If I challenge you, memorize this verse. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted to be on what you are able. But with temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. In other words, with every time we are tempted with sin, there is an exit sign glowing at us, saying, hey, this is the way out of this temptation. Are you going to take it? Maybe it's some, a friend saying, texting you saying, hey, I'm praying for you. Maybe it's your Bible sitting over there and you're like, oh, I should read it. But then there's this sin here. There's always, now I will repeat, always, because God is faithful to give us a way out. And he's not going to make temptation so overwhelming where we collapse under it and we have to give in. No. Temptation is not like that. We can resist through the power of Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And that's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 teaches us. Verse 15, it says, But the former governors before me laid burdens on the people. They took from them bread, wine, and beside that 40 shekels of silver. Yes, even their servants bear rule over them. But I love what Nehemiah says, but I did not do so. Nehemiah didn't want to lay more burdens on the people. He didn't want to be like the previous governors. Nehemiah said, I will not be like that. I will not put more burdens on the people. Are we able to say what Nehemiah says here in regards to our temptation? I want you to fill in the blank. I did not blank. Nehemiah said, I did not do so. He goes, I did not put the burden on the people. But can we say, I didn't cheat in that test. I didn't take the easy way out. I didn't lie. I didn't take drugs. I didn't gossip. I didn't go back on my word. I didn't laugh at that joke. I wasn't selfish. I didn't try to be like everybody else. Nehemiah did not abuse his power or authority, which actually makes his rebuke to the nobles and the rulers in the previous verses, in verses 6 and 7, that much more powerful. 
because Nehemiah's life lined up with his lips. His words and his actions were the same. They didn't contradict one another. I think we've all met somebody who said one thing and lived a different way. Have you guys seen that before? They could have been like, dude, yeah, I'm a skater, and you never saw them skate. <laughs> and you're just like, what a poser. Like, that's the idea. What a hypocrite. There's a lot of Christians out there like that. They say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but then all of a sudden, be at school, they're a totally different person. Cussing, making those dirty jokes, this and that. Nehemiah, his life and his lips were the same. Is that true for us? What if Nehemiah actually got angry at the people for their actions, but then he was doing the same thing? And he was taxing people, and he was taking from them, and he was hurting his brethren. His words would be that less potent, correct? They wouldn't be as powerful. See, when our words line up with our life, they have more depth and more authority to them. And Nehemiah was no hypocrite. He could say, I did not do this. And he was encouraging the people to not hurt one another by increasing the wages and the taxes and the different things like that. But why? Why did Nehemiah not do these things? He could have. Why or what are the reasons he refused? What was the motivation behind his action to refuse? The reason why Nehemiah didn't put burdens on the people and charge them taxes and take from them and take the governor's portion, the motivation was the fear of God. If you have your own Bible in verse 15, he says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. Now, what does this mean? Was he so scared of God? He was scared that God was going to discipline him, and that's why he didn't do it? This fear was a healthy fear, a healthy respect. There's harmful fears and there's healthy fears. Harmful fears cripple us and destroy us and prevent us from moving forward in our relationship with God because fear and faith can't coexist in the same heart and mind. Healthy fear is a respect. Some of us might not be scared of fire, but we respect fire, right? For those that have maybe shot in the gun before. Guns are very, can be very dangerous. There's a respect involved when you're shooting. And you got to have a respect for that. Nehemiah had a respect for the Lord. And the fear of God can prevent us from doing all sorts of things. <clears throat> I'll share a personal story with, with you guys. When I bought my truck in 2016, I believe, I bought a Chevy Silverado. Um, and the guy I bought it from after I purchased it, he calls me later and he goes, can I talk to your dad? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I was like, why does he want to talk to my dad? It's very weird. I hand my dad the phone, and then my dad gets off the phone. And apparently, most cars have this thing called a governor, which it's this device on the engine that prevents it from going past a certain speed in the car. So once you hit that speed, the car will shut down, and it will prevent you from going fast. My guy that I bought the truck from, 
he was a mechanic. He took off the governor. And right before he gave me the truck, he took out the truck for a spin. And he got it to up to 120 miles per hour. I was like, nope. So I have a truck without a governor, which means I can go really fast, but then I'll waste a lot of gas. <laughs> There's that temptation there. I just went to Arizona and back. And Arizona is this long road, and I could have just like, and just like floored it. What prevented me? I, go ahead. Safety. Safety, that's true. Because when you're going that fast, bad things can happen. What is that? Maturity. Maturity, okay. Fear. Fear. Kind of the fear of the Lord. Because I know God loves me so much, he will not let me get away with it. I know the moment I try to push that boundary and go that fast, I know there will be a cop there and I will get a ticket. And so I don't do that because I just know the Lord will not allow me to get, it, get away with it because he will make his children miserable in sin. And I pray that you guys will experience the misery I've experienced when I was in sin. I was constantly miserable. And I pray that the Lord would make you miserable until you are broken from those chains of sin. Because that's the only way. Because I pray that every time you give in to sin, that you are just convicted, not condemned, convicted, because conviction leads you to Jesus. Condemnation leads you away from Jesus. And that you will have this fear of the Lord. But it's the fear and the love of God that should be our motivation behind our actions. Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 37. This one guy asks Jesus, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your hearts, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He says, this is the greatest commandment. Do we love God with every ounce of our being? Paul, the apostle, when he wrote his most revealing letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, says, for the love of Christ compels us. I love this verse. You know why? The idea of compelling is like almost thrusting someone. He says, it's Christ's love that pushes me forward. If you actually look this up in a different translation, in the New King James, it says the love of Christ constrains. Constrains is the idea of someone pulling me back. So Paul's saying the love of Christ compels me to go forward. The love of Christ constrains me and holds me back. And in the NLT, it says, the love of Christ controls me. Does God's love control your heart and your actions, your eyes and your lips and your ears? I don't know if you've ever done something to make one of your parents cry and you hurt them before. But that feeling makes you never want to do it again. I pray that we would have that type of love and a deeper love for God. What is the motivation behind our actions to resist temptation? Is it the fear of God? Is it the love of God? What is it the motivation behind getting into God's word? Does it feel like a chore to us? Or like, oh, I'm sick of this Christian stuff. 
because I've grown up in church. I've heard Jesus loves me all the time. Yeah, I know. Alan Redpath said, love is the only motive that can inspire us to stay right with God, to keep our lives pure and clean. Warren Rearsby, he said, ministry motivated by love will build you up. Ministry motivated only by obligation or duty can produce hidden anger and eventually tear you down. If we are doing this Christian thing by obligation for our parents, or we're doing it by duty, it's going to produce this resentment, this anger, and it's not going to be healthy. The one thing that should drive us is the love of Christ. Paul said that we would comprehend to know the love of Christ, the height, the width, the length, and the depth. That word know means to know by experience. There are certain things we know because we've maybe watched a movie on it, we watched a YouTube video on it. Maybe some of you guys know how to drive, but you've never been behind the wheel. I know how to drive because I've experienced it. Even on my way back from Arizona, I was coming around this curve and I was going 45 miles per hour and all of a sudden there was this hill and this guy comes in. I didn't see him anywhere. Starts to pull on. I had a slam on my brakes. Everything in my car flew forward. You know, there was a car on the left side of me and I looked in my rear view mirror and I couldn't turn because I would have hit that car. And thankfully the guy pulled off again. I know how to drive by experience. Some of you guys think you can know, you know how to drive. Some of you think you know the love of God, but you've never experienced the love of God. And let me tell you, there's nothing sweeter in this life than to taste the love of God. There's nothing better. No love from a man or a woman will ever satisfy you. It is only the love of Christ. See, I know what it means to be motivated by obligation or duty because I've had that anger in my heart and I've had to confess it to the Lord and say, God, forgive me. May I be motivated by love because after all, I'm human. Now, it's not just about what we do not do. It's about what we do. Alan Redpath said, the secret of triumph or victory is not only found in saying no to sin, but also in saying yes to God's will and purposes. If we are constantly saying no to sin, no, no. Oh, I don't cuss. Oh, I don't do drugs. I don't do any of that. But you never say yes to Jesus. You're not better than anybody else. James says, if you've committed one sin, you've committed all of them. Some of us think we're self-righteous because we don't do those things. But are we saying yes to Jesus? Nehemiah said no to that temptation, and he said yes to God. So we see Nehemiah's selflessness. Now in verses 16 through 19, we see Nehemiah's generosity. Look at verse 19 or 16. Indeed, I also continued the work on this wall, and we did not buy any land 
all my servants were gathered there for the work. And at my table were 150 Jews and rulers besides those who came to us from nations around us. Now, that which was prepared daily was one ox and six choice sheep, also fowl, which, prepared, which was prepared for me. Once every ten days, an abundance of all kinds of wine. Yet, in spite of this, I did not demand the governor's uh, portion or provisions, because the bondage was heavy on this people. And then he says a little prayer at the end. Remember me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah, we see his generosity. He gives himself to this work. Most rulers will take, but Nehemiah here gives. He says, I continued in the work and my servants did. Nehemiah didn't stop working on the wall. He and his servants gave their time and their energy into rebuilding this wall. In verse 17, he says, at my table was 150 Jews. I like how the NLT puts it. He says, I asked for nothing, even though I regularly fed 150 Jews at my table. Do you know how much money it costs to feed 150 people? Some of your, our parents maybe struggle to feed a family of two or three or four or five or six. Nehemiah fed 150 people every single day. That's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars. Trust me, you guys got into Sam's Club and you've seen the list checking out and you're like, holy moly, mom, dad, did you guys pay for that? Nehemiah was generous. He didn't take, he actually gave. And being the governor, he had responsibilities to entertain diplomats that came from other countries. And he did that. In verse 18, he says, I like how the NLT puts it, he says, the provisions I paid for each and every day. He says, I paid for the ox. I paid for the sick sheep. I paid for the birds that we ate. I didn't ask for the governor's portion. This just shows Nehemiah's heart. He gave of his time. He gave of his energy. He gave of his servants. He gave of his money. What are we known for? Do we have a generous heart? Someone once said, you can see where someone's heart is, where they spend their money, by their wallet. So maybe we're buying a bunch of stuff for us, but then when all of a sudden somebody asks, hey, can you pay for me? I forgot my wallet. You're like, ugh. And we grudgingly sometimes pay for them. And I've been guilty. I've been one of those people. I'm like, really, dude? I really don't want to pay for you. <laughs> but there's other people I know who had very little. And every time they had money, they were willing to buy somebody else's burger. And I'll never forget that. And I said, that's generosity. See, I think sometimes we say, I will pay for other people when I have a job. I'll pay for other people when I actually like get a lot of money. When I win the lottery, I'll, I'll be generous. No, no, no. Generosity can start now. And you can be generous. If you guys don't have jobs and you don't have money, you can be generous in your time. You can be generous in listening to, listening to somebody else's story. You can be generous in love. You can be generous in so many other aspects, not just money. 
Nehemiah did not seek the comfortable life with all its luxurious things that go along with it. He resisted the temptation for the comfortable life, and he chose the uncomfortable life. Sometimes it's uncomfortable to give, right? Sometimes it's uncomfortable to be generous. The Christian life is not called to be comfortable. We're called to seek discomfort. Jesus wasn't comfortable on the cross. Nehemiah, he refused to take. Instead, he chose to give. I pray that's our hearts, is that we would refuse to take from other people and says, no, can I bless you in the process? I pray that we would have, comp- not competitions, that we would fight over blessing one another. Like, no, I want to bless you. No, I want to bless you. And we have this hard time because there's so many of us wanting to bless each other. And that's one thing I love about our church here. Our church is a very giving church. When it comes to Christmas time, we have so many ministries that need donations and all of them get met. We make about 400 shoe boxes for the church in Mexicali. And I've been there when these kids open them and they receive it and they're like so excited. We have a ministry called Angel Tree here, which their parents are locked up and incarcerated. And so we get their kids gifts for them. And all of them get met. Be praying how you can be generous to somebody. But look at verse 18. It says at the very end, because the bondage was heavy on this people. There was the bondage and then there was the burden that was on these people. See, when Jesus actually spoke of the religious rulers, the Pharisees and the scribes, this is what he said in Matthew 23, verse 4. He says, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders that they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they place this burden on somebody that they won't even touch with one of their fingers. Saying, oh, you got to obey all these rules and regulations. Can I make an observation that maybe you've never known? Religion puts burdens on people. Religion puts you in bondage. A relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't do that. A relationship with Jesus frees you from the burdens. A relationship with Jesus frees you from those bondages. And I love this because Nehemiah was like Jesus in so many ways here, being selfless and generous. Nehemiah, before he came to Jerusalem, the people had heavy burdens from the previous governors. But when he became governor, he removed those heavy burdens. Before Jesus came into my life, I was controlled and I was governed by my sin. I carried heavy burdens that were so hard and difficult to bear of shame and regret and guilt But when Jesus came into my life, he became my governor. And he set me free from those bondages of sin and the burden of guilt and shame. When Nehemiah saw the the burden that was on the people, he wanted to remove them. Jesus is looking at you and he sees the burden that's on your shoulders. 
He sees the bondage that you are in, the things that you're shackled to, and that you feel like you can't ever get victory. His heart is moved with compassion, and his deepest desire is to break those chains. He wants to remove those bondages. See, when Jesus is the governor of our lives, we have less burdens. But when we are the governor of our lives, when we want to control the situation, we have so many thoughts and expectations weighing us down. He wants to remove those things. Jesus' heart, his deepest desire, is to relieve us of our burdens. He knows how difficult life can be. He, he knows your situation as a junior hire, and each one of you have different situations. He knows how difficult your life is when no one else does, when no one else will listen. No one, when you feel like no one else is paying attention, Jesus sees it. He sees your thoughts. He knows your heart. And he wants to come alongside of you and remove those things. He wants to take away your burdens. There's only one burden Jesus wants you to bear. Do you know what that is? There's only one thing he wants to lay upon your shoulders. And that's his personal burden. That is his personal burden, which is easy. It's comfortable. It's light. It is almost insignificant in the weights of it. That's what Matthew chapter 11, 23 through 30 says. Jesus invites you, come to me, all who labor and heavy laden. If you're exhausted, if you're spent, if you're tired, he says, come and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You might not know what a yoke is, but this right here in the picture is a yoke. It's a wooden contraption that you would hook an uh, ox to, one on one side and one on the other. What Jesus is saying here, he goes, take my yoke. He says, I want to be linked together with you permanently. He goes, I don't want to leave your side. He goes, I want to work with you. I want to go home with you. I want to be with you constantly. He says, take my yoke upon you. And when we put on the yoke of Jesus, that love and that grace literally can break the shackles. And it's so easy and so light to bear. That was, that's what Nehemiah wanted to do. That's what Jesus came to fulfill. So if you feel like you haven't done what Nehemiah did and temptations presented itself to you and you didn't refuse, you actually took it and you gave in to the temptation and you're in bondage. And every single one of us is in bondage to sin, to ourself. Jesus wants to break you of that, to free you of that. He wants you to have this freedom that no one else can give. Peace, joy, but we have to let him be the governor of our hearts and the governor of our lives and say, God, I surrender. I'm done running. And when we do that, there's so much sweetness involved. Nehemiah ends with, remember me, O God, for good 
according to all that I have done for this people. Hopefully, we can remember Jesus and all that he has done for you and I. Because guess what? I think many of us, and even myself, I was convicted this week, and I forget the privileges that we have of being children of God. That God is my Father. He cares for me. He carries me. He's taken away my sin. The, pa- the penalty of sin, the presence of sin, no, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin. He wants to relieve us. May we remember his work on the cross and his love for us.